listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 255. In this episode, we're bringing you a story from the UK that has nothing to do with the Queen. It's about the British port strikes, featuring folks from Unite to the Union. But first, before we get into the news, we'd like to give you a gentle reminder that all of our reporting only happens because of the generous support from our listeners and subscribers to Dissent Magazine. If you'd like to support our independent journalism on underreported labor issues, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. And now the news. Nurses in Minnesota just ended a massive three-day strike in which 15,000 nurses across 15 hospitals in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area struck in the midst of stalled contract talks. They were supported on the picket line by patients and other community members. The main sticking points were not about wages, but about scheduling. Like many so-called essential workers, they've been feeling increasingly squeezed by short staffing at their hospitals and increasingly unsustainable workloads. The nurses with the Minnesota Nurses Association believe that the chronic understaffing and high turnover are undermining patient care and morale in the workforce. The strike was, according to the union, quote, the largest private sector nurses strike in United States history, unquote. Four of the hospitals affected by the strike are owned by Alina Health and another four are owned by Twin Cities Hospital Group. The hospitals, for their part, have claimed that meeting the nurses' staffing demands would be too costly. The nurses claim that corporate health care policies are driving hospitals to cut staff just to maximize profits. In light of the immense pressure nurses are feeling, Mary Turner, president of the Minnesota Nurses Association, said, quote, when our executives refuse to fully staff our hospitals and continue to push nurses out of the profession, that is a public health crisis, unquote. The contract talks were canceled during the three-day strike, but the nurses hope to resume them now. Now, we've covered a number of nurses' strikes on Belabored, and all seem to follow this pattern. The nurses call for more staffing and a more balanced workload, and the hospitals balk at the cost. What's interesting is that the understaffing looks on the surface like it's the result of an undersupply of nurses in the labor market. But in fact, nurses unions continually point out that there isn't a nurse shortage per se, but rather a good nursing jobs shortage. A report on workforce retention issues published last year by the Minnesota Nurses Association found that, quote, new registered nurse graduates have climbed in Minnesota despite the pandemic, unquote. And, quote, the number of registered nurses in Minnesota has increased by over 14,000 in the past three years to a total of nearly 120,000 last year, the highest ever recorded in the state. So there seem to be plenty of nurses to go around. If there is a staffing shortage at some hospitals, it seems to be an acute shortage driven by nurses simply choosing to leave the field in part. Surveys of current and former union members found that, quote, in 2021, 63% of MNA nurses reported that they had considered leaving their job or the profession altogether, or that they knew someone who had, due to being overworked, understaffed, and demoralized about the quality of patient care they could provide. In over 80% of cases where nurses filed a concern over the impact of short staffing on patient care, the nurses reported no response or an adequate action from hospital management, unquote. Nonetheless, many nurses do want to stay in the field, and that's why they're striking. The survey found that, quote, despite the pandemic, over 75% of MNA members indicated the desire to stay at the bedside for the near future. Of nurses who left the bedside in the last two years, 84% indicated that they would not return to the bedside if conditions did not improve, unquote. It's unclear whether the strike will move the hospitals any closer to an agreement with the nurses at this point, 
But the next round of negotiations will depend not on whether hospitals can afford to hire enough nurses to provide fair staffing levels and the care patients deserve, but rather whether they can afford not to. This past week, the U.S. women's soccer team signed their historic collective bargaining agreement with USA Soccer, an agreement that guarantees equal pay and conditions with the men's team, a first for the sport. As we have covered on this show, well, many times because I'm obsessed with it, the women's team is globally dominant, ranked number one in the world, the winner of four World Cups, and they have used that position to demand better conditions for the women's sport as a whole, as well as their own equal treatment to the U.S. men's team, who have won precisely zero World Cups and didn't even qualify in 2018. Sorry, guys. As I wrote in my book, women athletes in particular are often told to play for the love of the game, to be grateful, to never complain. This summer, while I've been in England, the English national team won the Euros, and a reporter used the occasion to castigate other workers who had been on strike. You've heard about some of those strikes right here on this podcast. They were saying that the women just played nice and never complained and certainly didn't strike on their way to slowly, eventually, maybe sort of getting respected and becoming number one in Europe. Yet, of course, strikes and strike votes have been a huge part of women's fight for equality in sports around the world, and particularly in soccer or football, whichever one you want to call it. It took three tries to get a viable women's professional league that would last in the U.S., and in other countries, women are still playing unpaid. The U.S. women's team sued U.S. soccer for discrimination. They did indeed threaten to strike, and they did it all while continuing to dominate the sport. In 2019, when they won the World Cup yet again, the stadium chanted at the end, equal pay, equal pay. And now that equal pay is a reality, thanks to all that action, all that organizing, all that union effort. The men's team agreed also to equalize prize pools, not like they win many, again, sorry guys, when tournaments looking at you, FIFA, don't pay equal prize money. Megan Rapino, do I really need to explain who Megan Rapino is to you? Told reporters, it's such a proud moment for all of us. That same never say die attitude we had on the field, that's the same vibe we brought to this. So it's a super proud moment. Really excited for everyone and really excited to see where this pushes the game up. Present at the signing ceremony in Washington, D.C. after the team's friendly match against Nigeria was Labor Secretary Maddie Walsh. Yes, I have to say it like that. I'm from Boston who congratulated the women and used them as an example for all working people. Also present were former women's team stars Christine Lilly, Brianna Scurry, and Julie Foudy, who emceed. A couple of U.S. senators, the heads of the Players Union for the NFL, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and the National Women's Soccer League, and AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler. Speaking for the women was Becky Sauerbrunn, president of the Players Association, who said she wasn't quite certain that it was going to happen during my career. It's a big deal. And now, on to the next game. This week, it looked as if we were on the precipice of a massive strike in the nation's railroads, which would have been hugely disrupting to the economy and various supply chains. But the strike was narrowly averted in last-minute talks between the railroad carriers and the unions who have been holding out in contract talks. That's the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, a division of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, and the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, Transportation Division, and the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen. Altogether, that's about 60,000 workers. They had been deadlocked in contract negotiations, primarily over long-standing issues with the workers' on-call scheduling system. On Thursday, the White House announced that the parties had struck a tentative deal, which includes a 24% pay raise over a five-year period ending in 2024, as well as an extra paid day off. 
It's not clear whether this deal would resolve any of the scheduling issues that workers have complained about, namely the requirement that workers be on call constantly around the clock and face harsh penalties for violating the attendance rules. Since workers are subject to being pulled in to do a shift with little notice, the scheduling system has wreaked havoc on many workers' home lives, interfering with their ability to make medical appointments and deal with family emergencies, and just generally making them work many extra erratically scheduled hours, leaving them exhausted. Union workers say that the problem is rooted in massive understaffing of trains, as carriers have been trying to reduce their workforces to maximize profits. It's unclear at this point whether the tentative agreement will actually address the workers' key concerns about scheduling and staffing. Plus, the union members will still have to decide whether or not to approve this tentative agreement in a vote. To learn more about what railroad workers have to deal with on the job, I talked to Hugh Dawes, locomotive engineer based in the Southeast and a member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen. He is also treasurer of the rank-and-file caucus, Railroad Workers United. After 34 years, I'm still on a pool job, and that essentially means that I'm on call 24 hours a day, seven, uh, seven days a week. So that, that's the situation I find myself in right now. And I think uh, that's, it's become a big issue for particularly the younger people. Uh, 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 the railroad's gutted. They went far beyond what they should have in cutting train crews, and now they want us just to be available to work uh, 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 at will uh, with very little rest uh, uh, at home or a little off time. And I don't know what it is about the pandemic, but it's set something off across this country. People have reprioritized their lives and realized that, you know, these jobs, be it in the railroad or wherever, uh, um, are not the end all. And that, you know, we want time at home. I think that's the biggest issue. And that's what the sticking points are. Uh, uh, the carriers, on the other hand, have decided that, that you know, we're just, you know, blue-collar labor to be mistreated. They don't care about us having a lifestyle outside of the railroad. And uh, they, they don't want to pay us for that, which historically railroad workers have been well paid, and, and part of that has been for what they sacrifice, the home life that, home life that they sacrifice. And uh, But my wages have remained essentially stagnant if we take into consideration inflation and what have you uh, uh, for my entire career, and now it's uh, becoming untenable for a lot of people. And when you mentioned the pandemic having an effect on people, um, has that also affected sort of the practical experience that you have on the job? Like there have been supply chain issues all over the place. You know, there have been issues at the ports. Um, is that affecting rail as well? And does that affect your workload? Absolutely. Uh, you know, you know uh, we're all part of this logistics chain uh, that extends, you know, around the world. And uh, uh, the people that work in maritime, the ports, uh, you know, the, like the longshoremen, uh, rail workers, and, and let's not forget the truck drivers have all been heavily affected by uh, the pandemic and, and the breakdown of the logistics chain. And so there's a lot of pressure on. However, in the railroad industry, a lot of the, the there were other things going on at the same time, the carriers cutting a lot of jobs off and trying to make us even more efficient 
than what we already are. And the sacrifice of that is uh, our ability to be off or to be available to them 24-7. The railroad negotiations that have gone on, uh, the carriers have, um, you know, uh, pointed out that they're offering um, wage increases. And it seems like the union has been much more focused on issues about work time and scheduling. And can you talk about, you know, why, why time is as important or more important than wages uh, to some workers? Well, because everybody's becoming frustrated about not knowing when they're going to be off. Let me say this, you know, three or four years ago, through the seniority, I, I had a job. I knew approximately when I was going to work. I went to work uh, uh, on a job uh, after 4 a.m. in the morning, the third job after 4 a.m., and uh, I'd go up to Chattanooga, take rest, and come back, and I would do that twice. I'd have I'd work four days, and then I'd have a guaranteed off day. I'd be off for a day. Uh, that's all gone. Now we're just reduced to... Uh, uh, essentially one great big extra board where we're just on call. And so I can't schedule life. We have yard jobs, but but they've been eliminating the yard jobs and the off days associated with those yard jobs. Used to be you could go to work at a certain time of the day, uh, 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 you you know, work uh, Saturday through Wednesday, and you'd be off Thursday and Friday and so on. But they're eliminating all of those jobs or have greatly reduced them. And um, so that's why this is such a big issue. Our wages are important. We need real wage increases, but uh, uh, and and I don't want to belittle that, uh, because certainly that's the only reason you go to work is to make money. But uh, um, with the strain on the system, uh, uh, the strain that uh, our bosses have put on us, listen, if I... If I mark off sick on the weekend uh, uh, and, and I go to the doctor, you know, I go to urgent care and, you know, they say I've got the flu and I have a doctor's note saying he's got the flu. He's got to be off for three or four days. That means nothing. Uh, uh, I am disciplined because I have taken a day off on the, or, or more than one day off on the weekend. I get to take one day off. I can mark off uh one day in a 90-day period on the weekend without being disciplined. And, uh, you know, and if I'm off, you know, if I'm off for five minutes into a second day, that counts as me being off for two days. It's ridiculous. And uh, that's the part that outrages me is here's the doctor's note. You know, I'm not just saying I'm sick. I'm proving to you I'm sick, and you're still going to discipline me for it. And, and, and threaten, you know, they, they, they have this progressive uh, discipline program, and, and you could ultimately lose your job. It's a hostile work environment is all I can tell you. They've taken great jobs and turned them into miserable. You, you hate even going to work, you know, because they're always out there looking to get you. Mm-hmm. Um. What do you wish your union was demanding at the table at this point? Um, you said that they had okay. backed down a key number of things. So are there things that you wish they, they would be more forceful on? Well, I, I feel like uh, when we went to the, 
the uh, Presidential Emergency Board, we reduced our demands right off the bat. What we presented to the Presidential Emergency Board was a lot less than what we were originally asking for at the bargaining table. So the carriers didn't back off. So we reduced our demands. And then, of course, the PB board essentially took our demands and the carriers' demands and split it down the middle, uh, um, except for issues, any issue that they could slough off to, uh, um, you know, more negotiations, they did. So things I would like to see, uh, and, and, and this is not really me so much as the people that I work, the younger people I work with, I ask what's important to them. And one of the things they they want is they want to know they're going to be off one weekend a month. Uh, um, you know, there's 52 weeks in the year, so that's so for they want 13 weekends. And and I think all your listeners need to understand most workers start out with 104 off days. It's called the weekend. Railroad workers start off with nothing, and uh, so um, I don't think it's outrageous that that they let particularly the younger people off one weekend out of the month. I think we need to uh, um, establish what a full-time worker is, which I believe the, uh, is it the 1972 Fair Wage and Labor Standard Act? I believe that's what it's called. It establishes that a full-time worker is one who works 30 hours or more uh, per week. And it, that language extends explicitly excludes railroad workers or people covered under the Railroad Labor Act, which includes airline employees, from that definition. So we need to have that. That needs to be the first line of the contract, you know, what a full-time worker is. Because right now, the railroads just sit there and say a full-time worker is one who answers the phone every time we call. And, you know, that's got to change. And then uh, our wages have been stagnant. I would like to see a real wage increase. Uh, uh, and, and, and I could even live with what the PB board has, uh, um, uh, prescribed if they also on top of that included a COLA cost of living adjustment. And I would use nothing more. I mean, you're never going to have a perfect, uh, uh, COLA adjustment, but just whatever they give social security and railroad retirees, you know, that percentage, that's what we get as a COLA raise that keeps us even with inflation. If it's low or high. And um, for our meal periods, the IRS allows us $60 a day tax-free. That works out to be $2.50 an hour. So from the time I go on duty at my home terminal until the time I go off duty at my home terminal, I would like $2.50 an hour prorated to the minute. That and, and, and flight attendants essentially have that. I think right now, for engineers, it's eight dollars and sixteen dollars. Sixteen dollars is the most. If I go up to Chattanooga and sit up there for two days, the most I'm going to get for a meal allowance is sixteen bucks um, under the national agreement. Now I'm under a local agreement on that. I get twenty four dollars, but that's the most, and it's regardless of how long I'm away from home. That's ridiculous. Um, and then you know. Personal leave days, railroads, I, 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 um, BNSF just issued some kind of a say, oh, these men have four weeks vacation and 13 uh, personal leave days they can take when they want. 
Well, that's a lie. You know, you work your way up to four weeks vacation. You don't start out with that. And you don't start out with 13 personal leave days. You start out with, I want to say, I think you start out with three to begin with, and it quickly bounces up to seven. But you work your way up to that 13 over a period of years. But the the kicker to it is I'm not allowed to take those. Per- I have to get their permission to use a personal leave day. And at least at Norfolk Southern, they're not giving us permission to use those days by and large. So they're meaningless to me. So that, that it's that kind of thing that you need to. And then the discipline program, I think the unions need to take control of the discipline program. It's gotten out of control down there. Essentially, carriers punish you any way they care to. And, yeah, there's an appeals process and what have you. But meanwhile, you know, they're, they're being very heavy-handed um, with their discipline. What about um, just hiring more workers? Um, could that be in in, in, in a in a resolution to this? I mean, could they, could they agree to bring up staffing levels just to take the burden off of um, individual workers to always be on call? Michelle, they deliberately laid off. Even, even when we got into the pandemic and they realized, Hey, we're laying off too many people. They continued to lay them off. They have created this situation. And now what they're finding in this labor market is people come in, they're hiring people left and right. They come out here and they see what the lifestyle is, and quite a few of them quit right away, even in the training process. And by the way, right now in Atlanta, a a conductor trainee makes more than the conductor that he's working with because they've had to uh, apply a bunch of incentives to keep these guys in the training program. But uh, uh, I'm going to tell you another little dirty secret that I think you're going to see occur. A lot of there's a subgroup of people out here that are waiting on their back paycheck that they're going to get when this agreement, you know, occurs, whatever agreement occurs. You know, this agreement dates all the way back to 2020. So uh, they're going to get a back paycheck and they're going to quit, at least in Atlanta. I know a lot of them, they have other things going on. There's tons of jobs out here with a better lifestyle. And uh, I think the railroads are going to really find out that, you know, uh, you'll actually, people are not, for the money that they're offering, people are not going to come out here and uh, uh, live this lifestyle anymore. Those days are gone. I get that, that in our capitalist society that it's all about the corporations and rate of return. And by federal law, you know, it's, 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 you know, the investors are the number one thing uh, uh, to a corporation, and they have to answer to them. And, uh, but guess what? You actually do need uh, uh, the humans that are out there producing all this income need to get a little bit of the pie, so to speak. And by the way, our bosses are off. They work four days a week, and they're off for three. They have all kinds of neat little schemes that give themselves plenty of off time. But, but, they don't want us to have it. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of them, uh, you know, just get on zoom from and work from home a lot of the time too, which is not an option for most railroad workers. Yeah, exactly. And and that is true. Yeah. I guess there's nothing like a strike threat to make the carriers maybe realize that uh, the workers um, really, you know, are important, but um, yeah, I mean, it seems like, 
for many historical reasons, uh, there are a lot of legal restrictions in place when it comes to what the railroad union can actually do in terms of a work stoppage. Um, do you feel like those laws are a burden? Do you wish that in a perfect world, um, would, would you not want uh, those laws kind of uh, keeping you from actually having an effective indefinite strike? The Railroad Labor Act uh, uh, is an anachronism in this day and age, but uh, uh, it was put into place for a period. Keep in mind, there were far more laborers out here, far more crafts and what have you. And uh, the government imposed that upon both the unions and the carriers. And there's good things about the Railroad Labor Act from our perspective, and there's bad things uh, about it. So, But the whole thing was to prevent the constant strikes that essentially shut down the railroad system across the country and prevented it from becoming an efficient part of the logistics network uh, that we need uh, uh, in, in you know the 21st century. Uh, let me say this: in a way, we're we're prohibited from going on strike in reality because we're so important to the economy. You know, the economy breaks down really on day one of a rail strike, and uh, and that's why there's always this pressure to to force something. You, you know, force the carriers and the unions to go. Uh, uh, you know, to reach some sort of agreement so that the logistics network will keep going. So, yeah, there's irritating things about it, but I think there's things that uh, in it that also protect us. And um, and I, I really view, in a way, I don't feel like the unions have been receptive. Uh, the leadership has been receptive to uh, ideas coming from the rank and file. And uh, I think in a lot of ways they're, very, they're disconnected from what's going on out here. It's very different from the time I went to work out here 34 years ago to what it is now. And, and it's evolving. You know, as technology comes along, we've gone, I was, a, when I came to work on my first day as a trainee, switchman trainee, I was a sixth member of a crew that was on one little tiny switch locomotive. I had an engineer, a fireman, uh, a yard foreman, two helpers, and then myself. Now, there's just myself as an engineer, and there's a conductor over there, and they're trying to get rid of the conductor. But that conductor is critical for me at my age, and, and you know, because we're up at night. You know, we're on call. We, I'm not working this, you know, specific shift or anything. I never know when I'm going to go to work the next time, and invariably, a lot of the time, I, I'm up there at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm out there on a uh, train and it's critical for me to have somebody to talk to over there. And, you know, we, we review the orders and review the slow order, you know, where we have to slow down, uh, temporary slow orders and what have you, and all the special instructions that they have. For me, it's critical to have that second man over there and the total cost of labor compared to what we're hauling on these trains is so minuscule. It's not even funny. They're trying to make out like we're some big, huge expense uh we're nothing uh compared to the uh income of the freight that we're hauling and uh, you know it's just, it's just ridiculous i let me say this michelle this years ago i was sitting on a big train 
I figured I had about 200 containers, a container being a truckload. You know, you see them run down the intermodal freight that you see running on the trucks. They're placed on uh, the train. So I'm back then, at the time I was figuring this out, each truck driver was making 42 cents a mile per container, okay? I was I figured out I was getting seven one-thousandths of a penny per container per mile that I was hauling. And if they would raise that up to seven one-hundredth of a penny per mile per container, I wouldn't know what to do with all the money. And that just shows you how efficient we are. Uh, and yet, and yet they, you know, they just can't stand it. Yeah, sadly, it sounds like the more efficient uh, the carrier becomes, um, that comes at the expense of of the workers and your working conditions. So, yeah. Well, thank you for walking me through all that. Is is there? I mean, I know we're sort of in a limbo period right now as we wait for the outcome of the talks, but do you have anything uh, you want to say, um, you know, whether whether a strike happens or not? Whatever happens, I think it's going to happen very quickly, and it'll all be over on Friday. But keep in mind, we're in the third year of this five-year contract that we're fighting over. That means in two years from now, Section 6 notices will go out for again. And to me, that's the opportunity for the, the younger generation, the newer workers, to get involved in their unions and, and make hold their leadership's feet to the fire. This is what we're instructing you to get us two years from now. And uh, that, that's what I look for. I'm looking toward the future. That was Hugh Dawes with the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and Railroad Workers United. Longtime listeners to this podcast will know that the workers at the Philadelphia Museum of Art voted to unionize during the pandemic. And since October of 2020, so almost two full years, they have been negotiating or attempting to negotiate a contract. Well, they're fed up with all that, and members took a strike vote recently that is now leading to a strike. If you are listening to this on the day it is published on Friday, those workers are on strike today across nearly all museum departments, including visitor services, retail, education, installations, curatorial, conservation, marketing, and development. I spoke with Adam Rizzo, president of the PMA Union, about the strike. From the very beginning, when we started negotiating with management, it was clear that they weren't there to actually negotiate with us. Um, you know, they hired lawyers from uh, Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, right. their notorious uh, union busing law firm. Um, so we kind of knew what to expect. I, I don't think I I truly believed, and perhaps this was like my own naivete, like that they would. Um, Push back so much on like so many of the non-economic issues that we were working through um, at the very beginning of bargaining, um, and we have come to tentative agreements on on many of those. But mm-hmm. um, I, I think it should have, in hindsight, it should have been clear to me that they had no intention of like coming to an equitable agreement um, uh, from the very beginning. Um, I think what really changed for us is when we started presenting our economic proposals the museum management and their lawyers and, you know, just everyone on the uh, on the side of the bargaining table for them just showed, like, absolute disdain for the workers of the museum, which was really um, eye-opening for us. Um, and we had seen this previously, like, in the way they were behaving, but um, I think it got to the point where we decided to file unfair labor practice charges. And I, I think that was a real turning point for a lot of folks. 
Um, and those unfair labor practices are things that, you know, are around issues that are affecting not only folks in the unit, but also folks in middle management. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, as is always the case. Uh, and uh, a lot of those revolve around, you know, we had, I think it was, if I cast my mind back many years ago now, mm-hmm. uh, two days after, I think, the the election count, like the vote count, the museum laid off, um, or maybe it was two days before. I, I get this confused all the time, but they laid off, like, around 100 people from the museum. And most of those people were in the unit, and they are now very slowly beginning to rehire into those positions. But right. what they're doing is instead of um, hiring positions, hiring into positions that had previously been permanent full-time positions, they're uh, classifying them as either like short-term positions, like as short as, uh, or, uh, you know, temporary positions even, as short as like three to six months. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes into term positions, which are, you know, maybe a year or two years. And that was a, you know, a clear sign to us that they are actively trying to shrink the bargaining unit. Right, yeah. um, so, um, you know, and that's just one example. It doesn't even, like, get into, like, their use of contractors um, at the museum, their use of volunteers, stuff like that. Um, so we've been really, um, I, I think, like, that was, that was, one of our, you know, charges is, is centered around that. We're kind of arguing that the museum is actively trying to shrink the bargaining unit. One of the other big charges is around, like, just over the past two years, like, we've just been inundated with these all-staff emails from the senior management team that, like, completely misrepresent what's happening at the bargaining table. And it's 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 not, I mean, I don't, it's not as bad as, like, uh, you know, a one of those forced meetings that you have in some workplaces um, that are, you know, anti-union propaganda, but it's, it's pretty bad uh, to the Mm -hmm. point where, you know, I even know folks in, you know, management positions who are just disgusted by the tone of the emails and the way they're, they're talking about like, you know, the people who make the museum run every day. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is just on economic issues. Um, You know, like we presented, management with uh, economic proposals a couple months ago. That's when we first did it. And really what we're just trying to do is to kind of bring the museum up to peer institutions. Um, and when I say peer institutions, I mean institutions of a similar size and in, you know, in the Northeast yeah. um, and uh, with a similar budget. Right. Um, and the museum has a huge budget. It's, I think, I believe it's like $60 million a year. The endowment is close to like $600 million. Uh, and not only that, but the museum buildings are all owned by the city. So the city pays for all of their utilities. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, like it, it's, it, it's just pretty absurd when you like look at the numbers to see like how depressed our wages are compared to other like institutions, which is a shame for the museum. Right. Because, you know, it, it just leads to a huge amount of turnover and brain drain. Like we just lose so many wonderful colleagues who go on to other jobs at other institutions because, you know, they can, they can get paid what they deserve for their work. So, and, and, you know, we're fighting, you know, we're asking for, you know, paid family leave, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And the museum museum is like, you know, Oh, you know, we've, we've offered two weeks paid family leave. Well, I I would love to see two weeks. 
Yeah, two weeks. How how generous, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, and the sad thing is, of course, that so many people don't have even that. But still, also, yeah. like, two weeks is nothing. Yeah, and you've got like a new baby in your that, house. Tell me, like, exactly. which person in management yeah. who is anyway? Go on, go on. Yeah, and, it, and it's like acknowledging that, like, yes, there's a need for this, but also, fuck you. Right. <laughs> you know, you're two weeks. Uh, so yeah, it's really it's really kind of upsetting. Um, and so you know, we got to the point where you know we had our strike author authorization vote. I think on the. 30th of um, <laughs> August, so not so long ago, maybe like a little more than two weeks ago. I believe we've had two or three negotiating sessions since then um, with management. Um, okay. Also, uh, our our sessions management has keep has has uh, kept making them shorter and shorter <laughs> in yeah. terms of time. Like we're meeting with them maybe like three hours a week, so it feels like they're really just trying to drag this out. Um, and we're offering to meet with them whenever they want, basically. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, like, can't believe that in those negotiation sessions since the um, strike authorization vote, um, they've chosen to use that time to talk about um, uh, I, the last two sessions have been around the use of volunteers at the museum. Right. And it's just, like, really, that's... It, that says a lot, you know, <laughs> and we're not trying to stop volunteers from working at the museum. Like we right. have no interest in stopping like our volunteer guides and our docents from uh, continuing to do the work that they do. That's not bargaining unit work. Yeah. Um, but we think there should be some limitations that yeah. they should not be doing bargaining unit work. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's been kind of absurd. So, you know, our executive board voted to authorize a strike on um, our meeting uh, earlier this week, and and we're going out for this warning strike on fr- uh, Friday, so tomorrow or today for you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, today for our listeners, anyway. So yeah, so yeah. right, so this is going to be one day strike, or yeah, so we're this is a one day warning strike, um, and we are hoping hoping that um, you know management will kind of this will be a wake up call for them. I think this is a moment that's a real pressure point for the museum. You know, we have a new director starting, I believe, next week on the 21st. Yeah. Um, Sasha yeah. Suda is, you know, joining the museum. And I really hope that she um, kind of writes the ship. Because um, yeah. right now the museum is being run by a former Verizon lawyer um, named Bill Peterson. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I'm not surprised by the behavior of management at this point. Um, yeah. But I, I really hope that like cooler heads will prevail and like, you know, they'll, they'll maybe get their act together. And I truly, I, I have no doubt that we as a, a cohort, uh, as a collective of workers at the museum across departments, um, you know, from visitor services associates all the way up to, you know, curatorial and, and conservation and education and retail, like we make the museum run. Um, the museum is saying that they're going to stay open tomorrow. I, mm-hmm. I tr- truly doubt that that's going to be possible. Um, I would love to see uh, some of our managers work the ticket machines. <laughs> I don't think they even know how um, or, or work a, a cash register or install the art. You know, that's the other thing. Um, yeah. So we're um, calling a warning strike just to show them that we can shut down the museum. Um, we're going to be picketing at, you know, the three buildings 
And, uh, you know, we're, we haven't made any decisions, but like, we hope that museum management will come to the table, you know, next week. And when we have negotiations scheduled or even before that, we would welcome that. <laughs> like I said, we're, we've made ourselves available in whatever they want to meet. Uh, they'll come to the table and that they will kind of remedy the unfair labor practice charges. They'll, they'll kind of adjust their behavior um, and that they will also, you know, actually counter our economic issue uh, proposals, um, which were last given to them across the table on August 30th. So, yeah. you know, we'll reevaluate after our next negotiation session and we'll see, you know, what happens. That was Adam Rizzo of the Philadelphia Museum of Art Union. Strikes are on hold in Britain right now after the death of Queen Elizabeth, but they will resume next week at full force. And as you heard about last episode, that will include port workers at Felixstowe and also Liverpool, unless a deal is reached in the interim. The port workers, as you know if you've listened to our ongoing series on logistics in the pandemic, worked throughout COVID-19, bringing in necessary goods while risking their own health, and they're watching private port companies now bring in record profits while their own races are paltry in comparison. The Liverpool dock workers voted overwhelmingly to strike after a 7% wage increase offer, with double-digit inflation and looming huge energy costs this winter. Joining me to discuss the port strikes, the current state of the British economy, the Tory strategy of free ports, and the cost of living crisis are Steve Gerrard from Unite the Union, which represents port workers at Felixstowe and Liverpool, as well as 1.4 million other workers around Britain and Ireland, and also John Lynch, Tommy Jennings, Ryan Healy, and Des Prescott, workers from the Port of Liverpool. Can I start off by having um, all of you introduce yourselves? I'm Steve Gerrard, the National Coordinator for the Union. I have responsibility for our members in the uh, in the Port of Liverpool. Over to you, John Ryan. Uh, John Lynch, uh, convener, Senior uh, Steward, Port of Liverpool. Ryan Healy, convener on the uh, Port of Liverpool. Dirk Pascoe, Top Steward, Port of Liverpool. Tommy Jennings, Top Steward, Port of Liverpool. So let's start off then with the strike vote at Liverpool. Um, tell us what some of the issues are. Well, the, essentially, the issues surrounding the um, the pay award this year, obviously, because you know we're in a cost of living crisis here in the UK, um, which I'm sure you're, you're very much aware of, and our members have voted to to take strike action because the company, effectively, when we talk about a negotiation, to, you know, to discuss pay issues and stuff, there's not been a negotiation. They, you know, realistically set a budget of seven percent, and it'd be more of a, um, I suppose take it all leave it, you know, like it all lump it type of thing. So, you know, obviously our members are incensed by that when they see the profits that this company's been making. And, you know, just to touch upon that, if we go back and certainly over the past five years, directors and shareholders have been taking, um, you know, uh, dividends to the tune of £60 million year on year for the past five years. That's coupled also then to um, their profits, which... I think on the balance sheet at this moment in time is 32 million. So you know it's it they can very much well afford um, the pay you know the, the the pay increase. But some of the issues that we've also got are historic from uh, a pay agreement that we had last year, and some you know some of the elements of that have not been uh, have not been delivered to our members. So again, it's um, it's got people up the tree. Members have come together now and said enough is enough. And you know we won our first license, first year of the uh, of the proceeds because after all you know it is the guys on the on the ground the boots on the ground. 
that generate these profits. Um, but you know, the, the, the company give us all the um, all the hard luck stories about you know that they can't afford it, why they can't afford it. There's now a downturn in trade. But you know, it, I suppose it's worth saying also that Peel, the Peel Group, uh, which obviously is the um, the overall owner of MDHC, the money that they've been bringing in. Again, if we look at the, the directors' pay, directors have been uh, one director, which we assume is the owner at this moment in time, increased his um, his dividends from one point six million in twenty twenty one to four point five million in twenty twenty two. So again, when you know the people on the ground that are generating these profits get to see that, and it's got you know people are really really angry. And again, the challenges that our guys face when they get onto the high street, you know, in terms of you know where uh, food prices are, clothing, petrol, all that kind of stuff, it's. Um, it's not fair, is it, when you see the fat cats running off with all the proceeds? Yeah. And you want to add to that, John? On the shop floor, yeah. Because again, Sarah, just to give some yeah. um, background on this as well, I mean, I think it's it's mm-hmm. worthwhile understanding also that you know these guys were categorised by the UK government as being key and essential workers during the uh, deadly pandemic. I was just going to ask know, that question, so great. <laughs> yeah, so they, they, um, you know, they remained at work, you know, placing themselves and the families at great risk. And nevertheless, you know, the, the, what I mentioned before, the company then recorded record profits. What we have be, uh, become aware of now, we're not sure whether Peel was actually involved in this. They've denied that they are, but they've not shown us any evidence to um, to counter a, a, a question I raised. We've got a report of uh, global port operators around the world who during the pandemic, when they, you know, once they were aware that the aviation sector was grounded, um, it was almost a cartel. They doubled the prices because they knew that freight and goods could only then move by uh, by sea. And I suppose that's where some of those record profits come from. Um, but yet, you know, we get to a point in time now where the company is saying there's a 30% downturn in um, in trade. Right. We're heading into a recession. I don't believe we are because, you know, a lot of employees in the UK currently um, are screaming for, you know, for workers, they're screaming for labour. Yeah. And that would indicate to me that we're potentially heading into um heading into a recession but you know it's probably just for me I suppose I'm just being cynical when I say this but it's you know for me it's just scare tactics you know to try and get the workers to back off um, but you know realistically if our members were to accept anything less than where the, the current rate of inflation is at 12.3% if they were to accept anything less than that in realistic terms it then becomes a pay cut but when we talk about the directors and the shareholders and you know and, and what, what they've been taking from the business uh, you know do, do they deserve a return on their investments Absolutely, they do. But ultimately, these guys that yeah. generate those profits, as I said before, you know, deserve theirs also because when the company is is playing all these hard luck stories, you know, we can't afford this, we can't afford that. You know, they can future proof themselves. They can galvanise themselves going forward because, you know, if they didn't, it would be foolish. You know, because it would be a risk to the business. But yet, you know, when the workers are coming to the negotiating tables and say, "Now we want to get," you know, galvanise ourselves and our families, yeah. and they're basically just told where to get off. Yeah, I would love it, actually, if you guys could tell us a little bit about what, what it was like working through the pandemic at the port and, and watching the volume of stuff that continued to come through. If I was in work, for instance, and I'd come in contact with someone with COVID, I would be sent home, without if I had it or not. I only got two chances with this. So the last couple of minutes of work, to work with, and in certain circumstances, I sent home twice. When I actually... Contacted COVID, he wasn't paid. The company's only putting it off twice. So basically, you know, key essential workers, but the company was only paying for two absences for COVID. Yeah. And at the time, when the first come out, you couldn't get a test, you had to just isolate for 14 days. So in the end, we were, you were key, key essential workers. You had con- Some people had contacts with company sick pay, 
and he wouldn't pay you. It was quite captain two times. So then that's supposed to cut me. You're making them loads of money and he would give you a, a loan which you had to pay back. So it was shocking. So in the end, we challenged it and challenged it. Uh, we were getting nowhere with it. We'd done a collective grievance, but that's, that's what we had to put up with. If you'd been up more than twice, he wouldn't pay you. So obviously everything is on hold a little bit right now for the, the Queen's funeral, but um, the strike date is going to be next week, yeah? Yeah, it's going to be yeah. 1900. That was on Monday the 19th. It was due to have been um, commencing long six or but you know the guys, so the our members chose not to uh, not to mount the pickets whilst the state funeral was taking place. So we were going to move it, but sadly for the, uh, for, the for the company, I suppose they've only they've now confirmed to the shop stewards that the port will cease operations between the hours of 0700 to 1900. Hence the reason why now our members will take to the picket line yeah. at 1900 on Monday night. And that is going to um, overlap some with the strike at Felixstowe as well? Yeah, Felixstowe, I think, um, I'm not sure what the exact dates are, but I think it, it crosses up. It, it, 27th to 12 months over. Felixstowe will go along to 27th to 12 months over, which comes up around with our second week of action. We do something collectively. That should have an impact around about 60% of the UK today. You know, these are two of the biggest ports in the UK. So right. I suppose when they, you know, when these strikes are taking place, it's going to have a massive impact on the um, on the supply chains. But I think it's fair to say that you know that our members have not got an extra grind with the uh, with the UK, you know, the general public in the UK. Yeah. Um, ultimately, the, the the fighters with their employer, you know, to try and get a, you know a decent standard of living and you know certainly a, a, a decent uplifting pay. And we've seen a lot of support across the the British public for for the strikes, um, regardless of of industry this year. Yeah, yeah. And you know, to be honest with you, I think people are beginning to wake up now. You know, obviously because they're now faced with this uh, this cost of living cost of living crisis, which you know we've heard in the media, haven't we? About um, it's you know it's wage growth that's driving inflation. It's not wage growth that's driving inflation. Right. It's 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 the profiteering. Of the you know of the greedy bosses, and if I go back to the report which I mentioned before, where you know global port operators doubled the prices, that pretty much then demonstrates what's been going on and what's driven the uh, the inflation to where it are, you know to where it is now. And again, these guys are just simply trying to play catch up to make sure they can keep their their heads above uh, above water, you know. And again, it's just maintaining a decent standard of living. But it's interesting also. I think Mick Lynch from the RMT, when it's the you know, whilst the rail were on strike, we mm-hmm. you know we had comments in the in the UK media um, about the trade union barons. And I think I'd like to say that <laughs> barons don't live in trade unions; they live in boardrooms. Yep. Yeah, I, I I'm used to union boss as the uh, the thing that they say, which is always hilarious to me. But like. Union barons is just really rich, but especially when it's coming from like actual people sitting in the House of Lords, and you're like, "Wait, really? That's that's you're going to go with that one, okay?" Um, but yeah, so we're seeing this real um, uptick in strike activity. We, we talked about the Felix Stowport strike, um, which I talked about on the last episode of the podcast. That was eight days of strike action, which also produced the best union video that I've ever seen, which is the guy like surfing around the port with his Unite flag. But the RMT strike, um, the postal worker strikes, the BT, um, I know I'm missing a bunch of them. And now you've got a new prime minister who's now being overshadowed by the Queen's death. But um, related to talking about the ports, one of Liz Truss's big promises was to beef up free ports. So I wonder if you could tell us 
And you could tell us yeah. a little bit about, yeah, what, what are free ports and what does Liz Trust want to do to supercharge them? I suppose what Freeport is designed to do, and obviously I'm the national coordinator for United on you know on the, the Freeport strategy and what we need to do to uh, certainly to organise because what the government what the UK government will tell you the Freeport is for, it's to attract investment and you know to grow jobs and stuff like that. And we don't dispute that that is, is the case, but you know, ultimately what's going on here is that you know the tax breaks that the UK government are offering and giving away um attracts the bees to the honeypot for want of a better word. And, you know, we've got to um, galvanise ourselves to make sure that any jobs that are created within these zones don't just come um, at any cost. It also, um, you know, we've, we've seen historically, you know, the, the port of Liverpool going back in the 1980s, I think up until 2012, you know, at Freeport State like back then. And, you know, it, it didn't create jobs. What it actually done, it displaced jobs from, uh, you know, from other regions. Mm-hmm. So people were made redundant. And it was simply just to get into the zone. But what I suppose is going on now with these free ports, you know, first of all, they're not free and they're not contained to ports because they're now on a 47 uh, kilometre, you know, a square kilometre spread. So it's a massive, vast area and yeah. um, that it's been created. Peel Ports, incidentally, is one of the main um, backers. And I suppose, you know, we would call that the ground zero from the port. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's 47 square kilometres then, north, south, east and west. But, you know, is there anything to be shared with our members? We don't believe the eye. We're hearing that they've got, they're going to create all these um, highly skilled jobs. All we've seen so far in a majority of the uh, the eight Freeport zones you know, that, have been, uh, that have been mentioned in the UK, all we've seen is just these vast warehouses that are cropping up now. When an input, you know, anything from an import coming into the UK, you know, from wherever it's come from in the world, it'll stay in these, uh, in these um, mega sheds, let's call them. And whilst they're there, there's you know there's no import duty. Also, then coupled to that, you know the, the import duty. If the, the if if that container arrives, you know for instance into Liverpool, it travels to another free port. Again, it it avoids the um, the you know the tax elements. Right. So you can get to see the attraction now. Why you know a lot of companies are going to want want to you know be in that zone. But again, what you know at what cost to the worker will that be? Suppose if we go back to um, the mishmash that the Tory government created when they had the referendum on um, on Brexit, right. and you know the I was going to swear them, but I won't. <laughs> but you know the, the mishmash that they made of that, and I suppose you know, what what this Freeport um, strategy from the UK government is now effectively the, you know, the UK government getting down on bended knee to say to the European Union, look, let's have a trade deal because we've got all these free zones that you can come to in the UK and, you know, you can make vast, you know, vast amounts of money and stuff. But again, you know, as the guys will tell you, it's, it's, it's at what cost does that come? Right. Because, you know, what it will then, you know, for me, what it will create it within the zone of the 47 square kilometres, those businesses that sit inside the zone then begin to create a race to the bottom for the companies that sit on the periphery of the zone, if that makes sense. So, you know, those who are outside are then economically challenged, you know, to start cutting rates and stuff to be able to compete with the ones who are in the uh, in the honeypot. Right. And, you know, if we look at the, the economics of this, if you're going to be giving all this cash away and you know, all these tax breaks, it, it's, it begs the question, doesn't it? You know, what, what social economic impact is it then going to have? John mentioned before, education, the NHS, you know, all the, the, the services that we rely on on a day-to-day basis. You know, the, the free ports will have a massive impact on that. And I suppose that's why United are now heavily involved, you know, around the UK in getting ourselves organised and certainly to reach out to um, to workers that are going to, going to be going into these zones to ensure that they've got uh, collective bargaining rights and we can get those rights extended out. 
if I can just touch on one point, mm-hmm. what you know, one financial um, giveaway that they've got. If an employer can demonstrate that they've created a new job, so hypothetically speaking, if they were to make redundancies in at, you know X, Y, and Z area and bring them to the bring them into um, the Liverpool Freeport zone and claim that they've created a new job, they haven't. They've just displaced it and moved it. Now, what they can actually do is it puts them in line for the national insurance contributions that UK workers. You know, it's taken from the wage on tax and national insurance. What it then does, it reduces the employer contribution from twelve point eight percent to five percent. So again, you know, it's it, it's it doesn't take the uh, the brains of a rocket scientist, I suppose, to um, to work out what you know that's that's got to be worth it to them. Yeah. You know, for the savings that they've got. And, you know, coupled into the, the, the free ports and also the industrial unrest that we're now seeing around the UK. Yeah. And, you know, when our General Secretary was elected on the, the manifesto that Sharon was elected on, yeah. you know, the, the, the strategy was and the, the, the manifesto was to protect job jobs paying conditions. Yeah. And so we are seeing this this pledge to sort of ramp up these places that the jobs can be worse, basically. Um, as a development strategy, which is ridiculous. Um, but it's yeah, obviously, absolutely. it's popular, right? The EU has plenty of these. It's not like uh, this isn't the only place to do them, but it's part of their, I guess, broader strategy post-Brexit to something-something uh, Singapore on Thames. <laughs> absolutely. And the other thing as well, what, what we're seeing now, and again, this will couple in, I suppose, or run parallel to the... Uh, to the Freeport strategy that the UK government have got. And I'm talking about charter cities and the dangers that that will pose to, uh, you know, to local communities. It's absolutely crazy. You know, we have arguments and, you know, yet people saying, you know, the trade unions want to take us back to the 1970s. Well, what, you know, where we were in the 1970s was a point in time where the workers said, you know, what the message is today, enough is enough. Yeah. And when people say about going back to the dark, you know, the dark old age of the 1970s, I don't know what's more bleak right now in the UK because, you know, you've only got to go into uh, into city centres and walk through city centres and see the levels of homelessness. You know, people sleeping in shop doorways and stuff like that, you know what I mean? So it, it's it's gone backwards and, you know, wage growth, wage stagnation has been, um, has been around for, you know, 40 years. Yeah. One of the other sectors which I've, you know, I've worked in, the, um, the road transport sector mm-hmm. in the UK. You know, we were hearing all this um, propaganda all over the news going back a couple of months ago about there being, um, you know, a skill shortage, a driver shortage. Mm-hmm. That driver shortage has been around since the uh, the 1970s. Yet you'll get employers that will say, you know, the pandemic, IR35, you know, all those kind of things. All they did was push an already looming crisis to the, uh, the last inch, to the cliff's edge. That's all gone quiet now. That driver shortage is still there. It's just gone quiet in the media because obviously the... People were waking up and drivers were waking up thinking, do you know what? I'm not going to be fleeced anymore. You know, if you look at the wage stagnation that that, that particular sector has, um, has suffered over, over the, certainly over the past 30 or 40 years, I mean, there's drivers in order to, you know, to try and uh, earn a decent standard of living. They're working 70, 80 hours a week. Yeah. And yet we've got so-called legislation, you know, from Europe on the, the, the working time directive. But, you know, there's, there's also what we call periods of availability. The POA is used to abuse and elongate a driver's working day. Yeah, and you mentioned charter cities, um, which I was just telling you before we turned on the recorder. I was reading a book about all this stuff. Can you just briefly tell our listeners what charter cities are? 
Yeah, Charter Cities, I mean, from, from my understanding, from what I've seen so far, um, you know, it, it's, I suppose, a, a, a private business can come in into a city and once they've got investments in that city, they can take charge then of, um, you know, all the spending for, whether it be on education, you know, on the NHS or on public services. And it's just scary, isn't it, when you say, you know, if you're going to dissolve the powers from central government and give it to a corporate business, it's just... It's absolutely crazy. I just I can't understand the logic behind it. But you know, ultimately, this is so that the um, the fat cats can uh, can take all the cream once again. It's like a charter school, like they call them in the states. I guess they call them academies or whatever the the privatized public schools. But like for an entire city, that's just bonkers. Um, yeah, and it's a good, good point that as well. When you talk about the uh, the academies, because again, when the the schools were run you know, by local government. Um, and you know they were under council services. It was funded by the obviously the taxpayer. Yeah. And yet, then these um, these academies came along, and it's just a private business. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's it, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So going forward, I know that um, Unite has um, new strategies around political organising. Some of which do not include the Labour Party, which is not doing much these days. Um, and so what is sort of, what should we be looking out for in the next few months um, from the union, from the, your workers, you know, up and down the country? What we're seeing now, it's just people becoming emboldened now, you know, obviously the scene of the workers, you know, what they're achieving now, they've achieved and it's just waking people up. But I suppose on the political scene, um, and I'm sure the guys will, will agree with me, if, um, the Labour Party conference will be, um, will be live whilst our members are on strike. And, you know, there will be plans for, our members to send a delegation to the conference centre, just to again, you know, I suppose a little bit of campaigning, but to also to raise the profile yeah. of the, um, the the disputes and obviously the challenges that workers are facing in the UK. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Steve Gerrard from Unite the Union and Port Workers in Liverpool. My pick for ARG is Work Sucks When You're the Only One Left by Emily Stewart in Vox. I thought this piece was a refreshing counterpoint to the media fixation on supposed work trends. First, there was the Great Resignation, which gave pundits endless material for pontificating on why everyone seemed to be quitting their jobs left and right. And now there is so-called quiet quitting, the trend of people supposedly deciding to opt out of quote-unquote hustle culture and sort of slack off passive-aggressively in their cubicles, doing their work but without enthusiasm and without going out of their way to please their bosses, which to some people is just work. The reports on these trends are, in my view, often unduly elevated by social media and reporters looking to highlight some new exciting cultural phenomenon affecting middle-class professionals. And they give the impression that the workforce is just one monolithic Borg brain that responds to fluctuations in the labor market like a school of fish. Stewart points out the obvious, that even though there is a lot of churn in the labor market these days, there are still a lot of people who stay put in their jobs. And the people left behind are often asked to shoulder more of the work that used to be done by their now absent co-workers, which often exacerbates the stresses and struggles that plagued their work lives long before the pandemic. Quote, the tight labor market lends to this overarching narrative that it is relatively easy for workers to pick up and leave their jobs if they're unhappy. And one economist I spoke to even suggested that this was the solution. But the reality for many workers is much more complicated. It's never really as easy as just quitting your job, is it? 
In fact, the psychology of deciding to stay at or leave your workplace means that the more miserable and overworked you are, ironically, the more you may feel pressured to stay and the more guilty you'd feel about leaving. Joseph Mazzola, Associate Professor of Psychology at Meredith College, talks about quote-unquote organizational commitment, where people feel attached to an organization or, in this case, a place of work. Sometimes people feel like they're a part of helping the organization achieve its goals, or they worry about what they might lose in leaving a job, like benefits or compensation or stability, and that holds them back. Or they feel a sense of guilt about exiting, worrying that there will be consequences for the company or for their colleagues, unquote. Employers are well aware of this emotional burden, of course, and they manipulate it to put pressure on workers to suck it up because they owe it to the team. Stewart profiles a marketing coordinator in Pennsylvania, Kate. Quote, Kate keeps trying to get across to her superiors that she cannot produce the workload expected of her, but said she is repeatedly told she's just, quote, unquote, gotta chip in for the team. Quote, I have all these deadlines through this week and there's only so many hours Unquote. Her bosses ask her to complete 10 tasks. She explains that she can only do three, so they'll have to choose. And then they just don't. Unquote. Bosses like Kate's probably don't give a flying fig about teamwork, but keeping more work on fewer workers helps them justify reducing their workforces to the absolute bare minimum in order to juice their profits. There are, of course, social consequences to this pattern, but those accrue to the workers, not the boss. This is especially true for workers in public-facing jobs, people we used to call essential workers. Exhausted and overwhelmed, they are interacting with increasingly frustrated and surly customers, and guess who takes the blame much of the time? We saw this during the pandemic with retail workers who had to enforce in-store mask mandates with resistant customers or hospital staff who got harassed by anxious patients. In the article, Nicole, a convenience store worker, said that at her short-staffed store, Quote, a lot of people in the world are very angry and they're not understanding that we're short-staffed, so they don't like to wait in line for an extra few minutes. And then they take it out on us and we get yelled at. The morale goes down when we get yelled at every day by customers, unquote. And workers face negative health impacts stemming from overwork as well, including more frequent headaches, depression, and anxiety. This kind of burnout, in turn, may end up being somewhat counterproductive because it makes workers less effective and efficient over time. But Stewart writes, quote, squeezing them may not make them more productive, but it might still mean more money for the people at the top. Even if things are worse for customers and workers, paying less in wages for nearly the same productivity is a boon for balance sheets, unquote. Though the article doesn't really explore the racial and gender implications of the growing work burdens of people in understaffed workplaces, my guess is that it's workers who are poorer, people of color, and women who often end up absorbing this extra labor demand. Those are the folks who cannot quietly quit so easily because their foothold in the economy is typically more precarious, and they are probably already being more closely scrutinized at work and held to a higher performance standard. This article doesn't really tell us anything new, but it does usefully underscore that in some ways, Work hasn't changed all that much for many workers, and the pandemic may have actually accelerated a long-term trend towards intensifying labor. That's a less sexy but more important trend than the fake trend of quiet quitting. The solution to a crappy job isn't about private individual actions, but public institutional change. Policies like paid family leave, stronger wage and hour regulations, or laws that facilitate union organizing are more comprehensive and sustainable ways to make work less miserable for all workers. Because the reality is that many of us can't afford to quit our jobs. But by working together to make work less bad, we can make our jobs a little bit more worth doing.
For ARG this week, I chose a piece that seems a little technical, but does a good job of explaining the ways that labor law in the U.S. is slanted to empower not just employers, but the biggest corporate employers and literal richest people in the world like Jeff Bezos. At Slate, Brian Kalachi and Sandeep Vahisan explain Uber drivers and McDonald's franchise owners have a common enemy. They write, quote, you wouldn't normally put Uber drivers, poultry growers, and the owners of fast food franchises in the same economic category, but they actually operate under similar work arrangements. They are all subject to employment-like control by large corporations, but without the protections and rights an employee would have, such as being paid a minimum wage. In other words, they bear both the risks of owning a business and the burdens of having a job, but lack the benefits of either. Meanwhile, their bosses at Uber, Tyson Foods, and McDonald's get to have their cake and eat it too. They control people who work for their business empires without assuming the duties and responsibilities of being employers. Such business models cast a long shadow in today's economy, but their rapid growth was not inevitable. In the 1960s and 1970s, corporations waged a successful campaign of lobbying and litigation to change the interpretation of antitrust laws that then protected independent businesses from domination and control by large corporations. Change is possible now. The Biden administration, specifically the antitrust and labor agencies, should use its authority to rein in these one-sided arrangements, which run afoul of historical and popular understandings of independent work and entrepreneurship, end quote. So not that we here at Belabored share the fetish for entrepreneurship that seems to be deeply embedded in the American psyche, but, well, I am, after all, the daughter of a small business owner, so I was raised with both the Kool-Aid about the value of being an independent business person and also with some understanding of the difference between running your own business and running a franchise of someone else's business. Or since I'm a freelancer, you know, who sets my own hours and bargains rates directly with my clients and editors and chooses when and how I will do the work, or, you know, being an Uber driver stuck with a black box of an app deciding which rides I will be offered and how much I will be paid for them. Kalachi and Vahisan explain, quote, there are two closely related business models here. The first, exemplified by Uber, uses restrictive contracts to directly control workers while denying them employment rights by misclassifying them as independent contractors. The second, exemplified by McDonald's, uses similar contracts to allow corporate headquarters to place a third-party middleman between itself and its workers. McDonald's outsources the operation of most of its restaurants to independent franchisees operating under its tight control. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity, they noted, is to distance large companies from responsibility for the wages and working conditions of frontline workers. This structure, which economist David Veal called the Fishered Workplace, is prevalent these days, making up perhaps 19% of the U.S. private workplace. It's what some people call the who's the boss problem. It's hard to make demands of your employer when you don't know actually who that employer is or when the employer can claim you're not an employee at all. The problem isn't new. You've heard about it several times on this show. But Kalachi and Vahisan argue that we're at an excellent moment for the U.S. government to do something about it. They write, quote, For decades, this landscape has allowed employers to control key aspects of their business while distancing themselves from the responsibilities they would have to employees. But the tide may be turning. In an encouraging sign, the FTC and the National Labor Relations Board have formed a partnership to address these types of issues where their jurisdiction overlaps. Until now, the agencies have worked in isolation from each other, allowing the role of vertical restraints in avoiding labor and employment laws to slip through the cracks. A memorandum of understanding states that the two agencies will cooperate on issues like misclassification and restrictive contracts that are central to the fissured workplace. 
For its part, the FTC has the power to rein in business models dependent on contractual control. It can prohibit unfair methods of competition and is not restricted by court interpretations of the Sherman Act. In other words, the FTC is not bound to follow a Supreme Court decision such as Sylvania. What should the FTC do? To establish effective autonomy for independent workers and businesses, the FTC should prohibit or restrict the use of an array of vertical restraints. For instance, lead firms should not be allowed to mandate 24 hours of operation for franchisees. The FTC should also prohibit franchisors from imposing maximum prices on franchisees, a contractual provision that forces franchisees to choose between making money or paying their workers a fair wage. End quote. Companies should have to choose real independent status for their contractors or become a real employer. They've been able to have it both ways, which for too long has left workers with the worst of both worlds. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on logistics work, pandemic fallout, and all the strikes we can keep up with. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to all of you for your support, for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting and Facebooking and whatever the hell social media you're using about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever else app you might be using to get your podcasts. It really does help us to find new listeners. And special thanks once again to all of you who have and are supporting the show financially over the past nine years over at the Descent website or now at Patreon, patreon.com slash belabored. We really appreciate your help making it sustainable for us to do labor journalism. Just like a lot of the workers we cover, we haven't had a raise in quite a long time and the cost of living keeps going up. Thank you for helping us keep this podcast going. If you want to write to us and share your story of working and organizing, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a port worker or an Uber driver, a museum curator or a McDonald's worker, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.